Section 16 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Infant God, Part 1. There is no poem in the world like a man's life, the life of any man, however little it may be marked with what we call adventure. For real life, even the most commonplace, is strong-featured, if we look at it attentively. No poet would so dare to mingle sweetness and strangeness, simplicity and peculiarity, sublimity and pathos, as real life mingles them together. The characters of the poet either stand out from the common lot of men as exceptional cases, or else lose distinguishable individuality altogether. But a man's real life is at once a bolder and a simpler thing than the creation of the poet. It is like a grand heavenly restative, which providence itself pronounces as the years go on, with a sort of eloquent dramatic silence, from one point of view inventive, as the improvisatory, from another merely interpreting the waywardness of a man's own will. True, however, it is that the very barrenness life of man that ever was lived is, if we take the inward and the outward together, a truly divine poem to which he who listens becomes wise." Each single human life in the world amounts to nothing less than a private revelation of God, a revelation which would be enough for the whole world if an inspired pen recorded it. But when a man is living in a state of grace and is giving himself up to God and leading an interior life, then his secret biography becomes still more wonderful because it is more consciously supernatural. Most inward-living men have some special attraction of grace, some divine mould in which their spiritual lives are cast, a mould which God uses not for classes but for individuals. Each man stands in a relation to God which is peculiar to himself. He shares it with no other man. He has had more graces or fewer, larger or smaller, of a different character, and blending differently with the varying circumstances of his outward life. These external circumstances are never the same to any two men as far as we can see. The alternations of bright and dark are differently distributed to each, so that each outward life forms a different amalgamation with grace from any other outward life. The very geography of a man's life changes his grace. If God allows the angels to behold the multiform lives of men in a clear light from his point of view, the world must be to them almost like a second beatific vision, such a glorious and bold revelation must it be to them of the inaccessible character of the Creator. A spiritual man may be defined to be one who has received a second life from God, a life which he lives privately with God, and which is itself a kind of divine law to his outward life, standing in the relation of supremacy to it, and at the same time leaving free play to circumstances. This second life is heavenly, its vitality is from heaven, its powers are heavenly, it is conversant with heavenly things and deals with earthly things only to transmute them into heavenly things by the alchemy of grace. In nothing is this individual attraction of grace more observable than in a man's devotions, and because of the relation in which devotion stands to virtue, in nothing is it more important. With some men it is the same all through life, with others it changes with the seasons and circumstances of life. Sometimes a man sees it plainly himself, at other times others can see it while it remains invisible to himself. Sometimes it is hidden altogether, yet not necessarily absent because it is hidden. In some souls it is so strong that it moulds their entire life. 
with others it is so weak that their devotion seems to have no rule beyond that seemingly external rule, which is more mysterious and excellent than men believe, the calendar of the church. Some men, for instance, have a sovereign attraction to the mysteries of the Incarnation, but without a special drawing to any one of them. Some are drawn to portions of our Lord's life as the infancy, the passion, or the ministry, while others fix upon some one of the subordinate mysteries, contained in one of those portions, as St. Charles Borromeo fixed upon the agony in the garden and worked that one mystery out in the grandeur of his heroic life. The spiritual life of some is more at home in the mysteries of the Incarnation as expressed in Mary than in the same mysteries as expressed by Jesus, or rather it is their bent to find Jesus in Mary, where more or less all must find him who love our Lord's own ways and follow his divine leading. The devotion of some is to the sacraments, and thereby they reach an amazing and very distinctive sanctity. Some have their spiritual hearing so haunted that all life long they hear the souls in purgatory, forever bleating in their ears like the strayed lambs, crying aloud, far up among the stony mountains. The devotion of some is fed by the pageants and functions of the church, while other souls fare better in a quiet catacomb with St. Philip, or on the hilltop with St. John of the Cross, or under the nightly canopy of stars with St. Ignatius. But there is one devotion in particular with which we are at present concerned, devotion to the attributes of God. All believers worship God, and therefore all believers worship those divine perfections which we conceive to exist in Him in some super-eminent way. But a special devotion to the divine perfections is something in addition to this worship. All Christians worship our blessed Lord as God and man, yet some have a special devotion to Him in the blessed sacrament, some in His infancy, others in His passion, while the devotion of others is to the Incarnation in general. Thus it is with devotion to the attributes of God. Some are altogether without this devotion, the absence of which in no way impairs their worship of God. But just as some devout souls live in the passion without any more special attraction towards the infancy than is implied by holding the faith, so some souls live among the attributes of God by a sort of daring predilection, and this dwelling place of their devotion is to them what Calvary or Bethlehem or the tabernacle are to others. Some also have a special attraction to one attribute rather than the rest. Sister Benigne Gojos was drawn especially to honour the divine justice, Father Condren, the divine sanctity, and Lancisius mentions a Spanish lady whose peculiar devotion was to the divine patience. We know that there can in reality be no such thing as separate attributes in God because he is a simple act, and is therefore his own attributes. But these perfections are the way in which he invites us to regard him. They are different sides of his character, different aspects of his majesty, and therefore appeal differently to our souls, and appear to work different works of grace within us. Hence it is that they become the subjects of a special devotion, or of several special devotions. But this devotion to the attributes of God stands in a very particular relation to devotions to the Incarnation. If we were to suppose that devotion to the Incarnation was one kind of devotion to God, and devotion to the divine attributes another, and that we were free to pass the one by and to adopt the other, we should fall into the most deadly error which could beset the spiritual life. Our Lord is the appointed way to God. The Incarnation lies all round Him, and faith has no access to the throne except over that region, whether they who traverse it have explicit knowledge of its true significance or not. Neither again is devotion to the Incarnation a stage through which we can pass and then have done with it. 
It is no scaffolding whereby we mount to the higher devotions to the divine attributes or the holy trinity, which may be dispensed with when the contemplative soul has climbed those fortunate heights. For our incarnate Lord is the life as well as the way. We cannot dispense with his sacred humanity either in time or in eternity. It is our abiding life. Neither, last of all, can we separate devotion to the divine attributes from devotion to the Incarnation, for our Lord, once more, is the truth as well as the way and the life, and the truth is one and indivisible. We cannot sunder what God has joined. It is just those souls who have laid the strongest hold upon the mysteries of the Incarnation that are most likely to be distinguished for special devotion to the attributes of God. When the blessed Paul of the cross fixed the passion and the attributes of God as the two subjects of meditation for his order of nuns, he implied that there was, in mystical theology, an occult connection between the two devotions. So, in like manner, our reading of the lives of the saints must often have brought before us the fact that souls, immersed in the spirit of the sacred infancy, seem to imbibe a special fitness for an eagle-like contemplation of the fastnesses of the divine nature. The infantine simplicity of soul, which comes from Bethlehem, claims kindred with that heavenly sublimity of spirit which hovers almost unalarmed around the mountaintops of God. Thus, to express shortly what seems to contain the chief truth of the matter, there are some souls whose chief devotion to the Incarnation consists in a devotion to our Lord's divinity in each and all of his mysteries, or in some particular favourite mysteries. It is thus through the Incarnation that they approach the Divine Perfections, and in the Divine Perfections that they most realise the inexpressible sweetness of the Incarnation. Any special drawing in devotion is a great gift from God. It is one of the most powerful of all the secret influences in the spiritual life. It is therefore of great importance to a man not to mistake or overlook such a heavenly attraction. Such a mistake is like a man's missing his vocation. Every man doubtless has a vocation, so every spiritual man has a devotional attraction or a succession of them. For a spiritual man is one who dwells inwardly in the supernatural world amid God's mysteries and revealed grandeurs. He is not a mere tourist who is struck by the sublime or the picturesque of theology and admires the scenery as a whole, and has not such a familiarity with it as to enable him to break it up into separate landscapes, nor time to brood tranquilly over any of them so as to have a rational predilection for them. He dwells in the world of theology. He is like one whose fixed abode is in grand scenery. He sees it in the morning light and in the sunset's glow. He knows how it looks when the misty calm of summer noon is wafting fragrance over wood and water. He is familiar with it in the vicissitudes of storm and calm. When the distant mountains are hidden by summer's impenetrable rampart of green leaves before his window, he feels that they are there and that winter's leafless woods will let them in upon his sight. He knows how the faces of the mountains change according as the light strikes them in the front or from behind, and how a stranger who has seen them in the morning would, in the evening, spite of all landmarks, be doubtful of their identity. He cannot help having preferences. Predilections are almost a necessity to him. Or at least he must honour, like a true poet, each coming season with an admiration which seems, if it only seems, to do injustice to the season that is past, like the souls who in devotion follow the calendar of the church, and honour most the feast under whose shadow they are sitting. So it must be to those to whom the supernatural world is a genuine home. 
Their life is a life of loves and therefore of predilections also. All spiritual souls are thus haunted souls. They see sights which others do not see and hear sounds which others do not hear. This haunting is to them their own secret prophecy of heaven. It would be sad to miss so choice a grace by inattention, sadder still to follow a fantastic delusion of earth instead of the heavenly reality. The soul cannot hear God unless it listens for him, and listening is the devoutest attitude of a wise and loving soul. Yet they who listen hear many sounds which others do not hear, many sounds for which they themselves are never listening. There are false sounds on earth which have a trick of heaven in them. They are like the phantom bells that ring for vespers, as from viewless convents in the wilderness of Zin. Yet the Bedouin deems that, with his practised ear, he can discern their thin tolling from the real sounds of the sandy solitude. The avoiding of delusion is not the whole of safety in the spiritual life. When a man turns his entire life into a cautious self-defence against imposture, he is leading perhaps the falsest life a man can lead. There is more danger in missing a grace from God than in mistaking an earthly beckoning for a divine. For, in the last case, purity of intention soon rectifies the error, while in the other the loss is for the most part irretrievable. Even in the natural life and in the spiritual life much more, they are the most unfortunate of men who linger behind their lot. They are like those who loiter behind the desert caravan. Straight away, as Marco Polo tells us, a shadowy voice calls them by their name and allures them to one side of the route. They follow, and still it calls, and when they have wandered from the path, a mocking silence follows, more terrible than the deceiving voice. The wind of evening has lifted the light sands and quietly effaced the marks of feet and camel hoofs upon the wilderness, as the breeze ruffles out the wakes of ships on the yielding deep and smooths the water by its ruffling. They have missed their vocation. It is no use their living now. They might as well lie down and die." Such are they who in the spiritual life linger behind their grace. They are, of all men, the most haunted by delusions and have the least discernment by which to tell them from realities. A soul that has let grace outstrip it will never see its caravan again. It may die with God, for God is in the wilderness, but faint indeed is the chance of its not dying in the wilderness. Let each man look well to see if he has not within himself a leading from God, and if he has, let him know that it is his one saving thing to follow it. In the kingdom of grace, the law, which has the fewest exceptions, is the one that rules that supernatural things shall graft themselves on natural stocks. Hence it is that a man's devotional attraction is for the most part congenial to his natural turn of mind. Now, it is with spiritual men as it is with poets— some delight in quiet, modest scenes, in woodland bowers, in tinkling brooks, in rivers that lapse so quietly with their brims on the level of the meadows that the sedge scarce twinkles in the stream, in cottages jasmine-mantled, in kine knee-deep in the cool shallow, in villages spires scarce overtopping a coronal of ancient elms, in the fragrance of the bee-laden limes, and in all those evening sights and sounds which tell of weary labour set free and wending to its home, which is an allegory that bears a thousand gentle interpretations. Others delight in the misty plain, in the forest solitude, in the distant horizon of the steppe, in the solemnity of the overclouded fen, in vast outspread scenes of moonlit sea, or in the silence of deserted cities and neglected ruins. These are the images which recur in their works again and again, 
as if those aspects of nature were the entire expressions of their minds. There are some whose imagery is all from the tangled lives of men, and the many-sided aspects of human actions, poets who have no still life within their souls except when they reach the intensest depths of passions, which at such depths are gestureless and mute. They can clothe in marvellous beauty the objects whose daily commonness most dishonours them. The streets of the city become beautiful in their word pictures, and the trampling of a multitude makes music in their verse, while the familiar thoughts and things of their own day impart a livingness to their souls, full of nerve and of significance yet dignified and beautified by the excellence of their art. There are others who like to live in echoing thunderstorms among the rifted crags of the hollow mountains, who go far out of the sound of suffering humanity and are dwellers with the eagles. The stun of the thundering avalanche, the black, mountainous and shipless seas bursting on the iron-bound coast, the cloud pageantry of magnificently appalling storms, the sobbing and moaning of the winds in purple, unsunny glens, the overwhelming silence of the central desert, the creaking of the huge Cordillera as the earthquake stretches its stiff limbs upon the rack, the unwitnessed volcanoes that wave their red torches over the silent ghastly whiteness of the creatureless South Pole as if they were Earth's fiery banners hung out in space as she races onward, the terrific regions of tumultuous mountain tops with misty breaks between the ridges where humble sequestered veils might be, shapeless waving forms and throbbing silences, shadows in the gigantic gloom of unsunny caves, immense precipices that sleep forever in shadows of their own, even when the brightest sun is shining. These are images, expressed or unexpressed, which overcast the work of such minds and their genius, their inspiration, their native grandeur. It is in a world of these dread forms that their minds breathe most freely, or rather they breathe freely nowhere else but there. It is to these last that we may compare the souls whose attraction in the spiritual life is to the divine perfections. Majestic deserts as they are, to the bounded intelligence of man, yet some souls find better nurture there than in the verdant pastures lower down. The eagle chooses his dwelling with as faultless an instinct as the nightingale deep hidden in its bush, or the robin trilling its winter song upon the window-sill. We must not call such souls ambitious. They have been lured thither by wiles of grace as gentle and as gradual as those who have been drawn to the crib of Bethlehem. They are humble, and therefore they are not deluded. Is it not the men of the loftiest conceptions, who for the most part have the humblest minds? It is to such souls that this chapter is especially, though by no means exclusively, addressed. The deepest and most profitable devotion to the Incarnation is that which never loses sight for a moment of our blessed Lord's divinity, and the richest as well as the safest devotion to the divine perfections is that which contemplates them in connection with the mysteries of the Incarnation. Our present object, therefore, is to furnish the materials for such devotion in a special connection with the mysteries of the sacred infancy, though for a while we must seem to be going away far from them. End of section 16